Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, wonderful people. Welcome back to The Ramble. I have a wonderful guest, somebody who I have admired from afar for a very long time. Well, it feels like a long time. And I finally got her to come on the podcast. Her name is Christina Crook. And Christina is a graduate from Simon Fraser University School of Communications. She worked for some of Canada's most recognized media organizations, including the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and Rogers Digital Media. Her own battle with digital overwhelm, balance, and values misalignment led her to write the book, The Joy of Missing Out. Finding Balance in a Wired World, which I read and loved and prompted me to reach out to her, which examines the connected world through the lens of her own internet fast. Christina's book was a harbinger for, of the global JOMO movement and kicked off her ongoing work as a digital mindfulness thought leader, speaker, writer, and host of the JOMO Cast podcast. Behind the scenes, Christina is raising three kids with her husband in Toronto's Junction neighborhood. You can find her nourishing her mind and body by rowing, mailing postcards, or flying brightly colored kites with her family on the lakeshore. That sounds very lovely. She's (laughs) represented by Samantha Haywood at Transatlantic Literary Agency. Christina's writings has appeared in cbc.ca, Uppercase, Christianity Today, Simplified Magazine, Second Nature Journal, Publishers Weekly, Religious News Service, Comment, and the Literary Review of Canada. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just... I'm so grateful that you took the time to come on the show, but I'm more grateful that you took the time to do the work that you did and do. And the reason I wanted you on the show so badly was because it resonated with me so much, as I'm sure it does with so many. I don't exactly remember how or why I stumbled across Jomo, the book, but it was, I think, I, I think it was just one of those moments where I said to myself, I'm just, I'm going crazy. And I just searched some stuff, like some books on the topic on Amazon, found yours and bought it. I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's what happened, but I'm pretty sure. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) And I just read it and there was, you know, multiple things that struck me, but the, the thing that struck me the most was not this idea of living without technology or living with less technology or or building a framework to manage your technology. It was your search for deeper meaning in life. This almost nostalgic look at what is really, truly meaningful and valuable in life. Now, I'd love if you could just walk the audience through how you came to the place where you needed to write this book. But almost more interestingly to me was when, after you'd written the book, you felt like you weren't living the principles of it, which Mm. is really the catch that so many people find themselves in as they read a great blog and then they don't do anything with it. Right. Right. So why don't you just go at it? The floor is yours. (laughs) Okay. Well, as you mentioned in the bio, I am a student of communication. So, you know, I was 
early, early on in my professional life, I was keyed into the ways in which technology both shapes individuals and cultures. And in my early career, that was sort of when social media was just emerging. Like Facebook was, you know, came on the scene. I was working as a freelance journalist and I was noticing right away how how news became very bite-sized, how relationships in my own life were shifting, how conversations just among my peer group um, were shifting. We weren't telling each other's stories anymore. We were, you know, using the internet or using social media to kind of get a glimpse of what was happening in people's lives. And we weren't actually going to them directly to tell us like what's going on. There was this weird, do you remember that? There was like this weird assumption that you knew what was happening with other people. This was like in the early, early days. And I was just keyed into the ways it was changing me and the people around me, you know, not for the better. Around the same time, I had moved with my family from Vancouver, which is where I was born and raised on the West Coast, West Coast, uh, to Toronto, Canada, where I live now, and sort of in one fell swoop, all of my relationships were all of a sudden mediated in some way through the internet. I mean, we had the phone, but of course, um, you know, email and, and social media and these things. And I, it became like a crutch. It became like a crutch for me where I was checking in. I've got a huge family. I have seven siblings. I know it's an insane mixed family, (laughs) (laughs) but we've been mixed since we were all little. So we're, you know, we're all regular brothers and sisters in our own, in our minds. And So, you know, I was checking in on family and friends, but not really getting a clear picture of what was going on in their lives. And the reason I knew this is because, you know, I think like my brother and his wife and Whistler were doing really, really well. And I talked to my mom and she's like, all is not as it seems, you know, like we are posting the highlight reels, but we're not getting the real story behind the scenes. And you know, the challenges they were facing as we all are. And so I had the, a curiosity about what would happen if I removed the internet from my life for a substantial period of time, kind of as an experiment to see what would happen to me creatively. You know, I'm a writer and I was, I always wanted to write poetry and read poetry at young kids. And I'm like, I never have, to, I don't have time. I don't have time for that. I'm curious what would happen to my new neighborhood relationships. You know, would I rely on people more with the removal um, of the internet, my marriage, all of these things. And so I ditched the internet for 31 days. I called the experiment Letters from a Luddite. Wonderfully, I actually opened a letter just today. I'm showing Joel right now yeah. <laughs> a letter. I still get letters from people. This is this is a really fun, it's actually a British-based company. That's cool called a pigeon and it unfolds. He can maybe throw the link in the chat. I love this company. Anyways, so instead of being on the internet, what I did is I wrote a letter every single day to the same friend about the the experience of being offline in in an increasingly digital world. And so my big takeaways from that uh, experience were that I just immediately had this quietness of mind. Mm -hmm. Like it just felt like all of the chatter fell away. And I didn't realize how much my head was always full of other people's opinions and thoughts and ideas. I created a lot. I mean, I did the letters experiment, which, you know, was quite creative. I got really into like collaging and kind of messing about with paper because why not make it beautiful and fun and mailing those. And she posted those to a blog. So that was very creative. I couldn't Google for things. So I had to ask neighbors. I remember I could still use the telephone. I remember calling my mom <laughs> for something like, she's like, I use the internet for that. <laughs> she's like, not that impressed. You know, like, she internet shamed you. <laughs> yeah, she totally internet shamed me. She's like, I'm like, but this is connecting us. Don't you see? She's like, no. 
So <laughs> there definitely were, there definitely were sort of bumps in the road. I actually needed to file two stories that I was writing that month that I hadn't finished. I actually had to save them. I, I had my computer, but I couldn't connect to the internet. So I had to save them on a USB stick, if anyone remembers even what those are, and actually mail those um, in the mail to some editors. And one of them got lost. And my big one of my big takeaways from that was uh, email is awesome. Like you can file stories for free instantaneously. So that's that's a pretty good perk. Um, but when I came back online, it was definitely like going, if anyone's done a water fast or any kind of significant fast you know, you're not going to gorge yourself. It's just not a good idea. And so it was very much with fear and trepidation that I came back online because I didn't want to fall into old habits. And also like, I wasn't that excited to open my, my inbox, if I'm honest, right. Start processing all these messages. Although there were some treasures in there, which is an interesting thing about email. If you kind of let it accumulate, there can sometimes be really good stuff in there. So good reason to sort of not process it immediately, but Anyway, so I did sort of, I don't, I don't, I'm rambling. This is the ramble. So I'm this allowed is the to do ramble. That. You're Thank allowed. you. <laughs> Thank you for the permission. I'm going to pause in a moment, but I, I did, you know, institute some pretty significant changes. When I went back to my email, I unsubscribed from just about every, you know, newsletter ad-based service that I, you know, inadvertently signed up for over many, many years, as we all have, we've got the old Navy emails and the newsletters <laughs> and all, all the things. So really got rid of those. I introduced, you know, some regular email checking rules. Uh, yeah, I really changed the way I, I made a point of calling people, um, especially friends and family that actually weren't online, like my grandmother, we're talking about, you know, an elderly person in your family, you know, people that weren't as engaged online, I have a couple of key people in my life um, that aren't really engaged online for various reasons. And so, you know, I really made a point and continue to make a point to phone those people and connect in that way. So uh, I didn't get to the fall back into my old ways. So maybe we can get there in a minute, but uh, that's where it all started for me. Yeah. And, and we will like, let's, let's pin it there. Well, actually not let's pin it there, but let's I want to take it from there before we go to the fallback. And I want to, mm-hmm. I want to pull out a question. And I believe that question ties into Good Burdens, which is mm-hmm. your latest book, which is also a great book. And again, I think that book even pushes further into this, this thing that you're looking for, this thing that you, this, this true joy and true purpose in life uh, that, that is underneath all the stuff that we, we put on top of it, all the stuff that's not as important. And what's interesting in that is you talk about I, burdens, you talk about struggle, you talk about things worth struggling for. And so I, again, we're going to get there, but I want to start with relationships because you just talked about having relationships with, especially with people who, uh, who aren't online and, you talk a lot about neighbors and you talked about just now recently relying on neighbors and how this, this process helped shape some of these different relationships. And so what changes in the dynamic when you take the digital bite-sized communication and you move it to face-to-face or phone, something that requires more efforts and more importantly, something that requires more presence? Hmm. And I'm not sure if you can hear my dog barking, but I... I 
I can right? a little bit, but I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> he is a monster of a dog. And so his bark is very loud. <laughs> very loud. Um, can you just uh, full circle that for me with the question? Yeah, I want to know how the relationships change when you or in your experience, when you take the relationship offline Mm. from the bite-sized communications, whether that's Twitter, whether that's a DM, whether that's even an email to -to face-to-face, to popping in to see your neighbor, to getting Mm. on the phone and being willing to have a long conversation. Yeah, I would almost go as far as to say, and I'll probably get some pushback on this from some listeners, that it's not really a relationship (laughs) in the truest sense until it is embodied in some way. Mm -hmm. I think, so I would say like texting or, you know, just messaging people, like that is a kind of relationship, but I would call that, you know, someone who's, I wouldn't call that a friend. What would we call that? We would call that uh, an someone who's an acquaintance, mm-hmm. someone we know professionally, perhaps. I do think we can build a friendship in the way that you are and I are right now, Joel. We can mm-hmm. see each other, you know, through video. And I'm actually meeting up with a friend in London a couple of weeks who we actually haven't met in person. It seems bizarre that we haven't met in person before because we do feel like we know each other really well. But I know that I'm about to get to know know her on a level that I haven't had a chance to get to know her because to use this example, her name is Georgie Brown. She works in the same space as I do in terms of digital well-being. But when I'm in the room with Georgie, here's what I expect to happen. I'm going to see things that she's noticing in the room that we're in. <laughs> I'm going to notice the clothes that she's wearing. I've never seen her right top to toe and the, the, the kind of style she has. We're going to walk through the city together and we're going to, you know, walking and talking, you're an athlete. You know, the types of conversations we have in movement are also incredibly different from being stationary. So I, I have this new thing I'm talking a lot about um, from the work in Good Burdens, that the big promises of big technology are that it's going to give us convenience and comfort and control. But the things that actually bring us most joy, which are almost always relational, almost always to do with friendship or relation, some kind of relationship, they're often, they often involve discomfort. <laughs> they're often inconvenient, right? And they're uncontrollable. This is why there's something called FOGO, which is the fear of going out, right? The internet is in a controlled environment. Even though you and I are two human beings connecting right now, it is an incredibly controlled experience we're having right now. You are physically in a square box on my computer. I can feign technical difficulties and end this call at any time, right? Like I wouldn't, but I could. Um, Whereas when you're in the real world, like people are wild cards. Like there's a lot of risks that you're taking when you're with people. And it's in those risks we take of the uncomfortable or delightful conversation you have with someone in person where there is a vulnerability, like in the truest sense of the word, like you're physically close enough that someone could touch you or hurt you because you're in, you're in that physical space. So it's, it's really not comparison, comparing the same thing, you know, engaging digitally versus in the real world. And I, and um, you know, we've been on the internet forced online, you know, almost completely for the last two and a half years. And I was just speaking at a conference in person yesterday and it was a very simple message that I was really trying to drill home, which is to create opportunities. These are student leaders at university of Toronto 
creating containers, creating opportunities for students or anyone that you lead to gather to gather in some way, creating opportunities to build warm relationships with other people because science shows that warm relationships are the number one indicator of health and happiness throughout our life. It impacts absolutely everything. That is so true. I think that it also is one of the number one contributors to longevity in life. uh, Yes, it is. Uh, you know, and we, we go back to like biohacking and, and all these life hacks that we, that we do today. And then you look, it's like sleep and having companionship with the two best. <laughs> That's it. This, this not, we didn't have to hack anything. It's Just, amazing. <laughs> the, the simplicity Wait, of it. One's easier than other, the other though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it I, I, and again, that's what I, I, I keep seeing in your work is this, this beautiful simplicity that you're, you're trying to inspire, even in your bio, flying a kite on the shores of Lake Superior, Lake Superior, right? Lake, Lake, Lake Ontario. Lake Ontario. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. Right beside Lake Superior. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I, my Canadian yeah. geography is, shouldn't be as hazy as that's it is. Okay. But I, again, there's, there's all, there's always so many places I want to go when you share something because it's also raw. It's still so mm. raw. And the reason I say that is, you know, when you talk about comfort, convenience, and control, the first thing that I go to is this idea of modern, modern, modernity, excuse me, mm-hmm. where technology solves all problems in a modern world, right? And we have been in that thinking for 15 years now, I think, 10 for sure, where even when you look at like uh, Peter Diamandis's book, Abundance, which is a fantastic book about the future is better than you think. Mm. There's technology baked into the solution for almost every single problem in the world. And I'm not saying that it doesn't, but, but we have this sort of technocrat, tech overlord ideology, if you will, where... Mm-hmm. Technology and its and its saviors will save the world. Whilst in many ways it's doing that, there is an incredible amount of collateral damage happening on the backside of it that we're talking about. But we're it's almost like I'm getting to what I'm trying to say. It's almost like we can't talk about it fast enough because just as soon as your two wonderful books come out and guys like Tristan Harris and his social dilemma are happening. It's like web three is being jammed down our throats and you talk about controlled environments. Well, nothing's going to be more controlled than the metaverse. That is that's almost the outsourcing of all our faculties into that. And I, and so we're way ahead of where I wanted to be, but how are you now thinking about your work in relation to what's like where web three is going with AI, with the metaverse and, and just, you know, people's, what that's going to mean for, for us as mm-hmm. race. <laughs> it's interesting. I'm glad you're asking this question. So, so the big meta announcement that Zuckerberg made, you know, what is it now? Six months ago now, I can't remember how long ago people, you know, I was reading all kinds of reports and excitement and confusion and all the other things. And my response was actually, I wept. <laughs> And I was going to write about it. And I was like, is this too over the top that I'm actually crying watching this presentation? But 
here's why I was crying. And it's because I know a few things to be true about the human experience. We can't build relationships if we don't know what's really real, period. And so when we talk about shifting all of our professional and ultimately their goal is almost all of our personal engagements into the controlled space that is the metaverse, which is really just one giant advertisement. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Then we don't know what's really real and we can't build actual relationships. Just think about it. If you don't know what's really real or what's really true about your partner, if you don't know the truth of your, you know, about your best friend, right? If you can't see and touch and feel a space that's shared with another person, like you can't build real relationship. And so when what I look at with meta is like, it kind of just, I kind of just want to throw my hands up and walk away if I'm honest, like, what are we even doing? And so I've spent the last like four or five years really on this digital mindfulness track of teaching people strategies for using technology well, but I'll just be perfectly honest with you. I am, I am, the pendulum is swinging for me again, back to an even simpler message, which is strategic abstinence, like abstaining from particular technologies. And I think there's a case to be made for starting to draw some serious lines in the sand about what we will engage with and what we won't engage with. And I'm coming sort of, you may have picked up on it in some of my writing, but I actually come from a particular religious tradition. And I think there's a lot of things in that you, you've probably heard of the Amish, the Amish are, you know, from the, the Christian Christian tradition and Kevin Kelly, who's the founding editor, editor of Wired magazine has written at length about the Amish. And what people don't know about the Amish is that it's not that they don't um, adopt new technology. It's just that they adopt it so incredibly slowly. Mm-hmm. And so they watch, they watch and see what happens when new technologies come to market. And then they run it through a very simple but powerful sort of methodology. And they look at it and it's like, is this contributing to overall community health? Like, is this going to serve the wider community that we're a part of? Is this going to support marriages and families? Is this going to support people's physical health? Is this going to be good for the environment? <laughs> they look at all they, of. I didn't know they had a, that they that they. They have, have a rubric filter. for how they decide whether oh. a new technology comes in, and it's very powerful. And so they, you know, they see us running around like crazy, like true crazy people at this point, <laughs> and they're just like kind of wash their hands of it. But they are very slowly. They do slowly adopt new things, and so I think there's coming a new time of a new kind of rubric that we need culturally to decide like what kind of society do we want to build? I don't want to live in a world where when I step outside my front door, it is quiet and silent. I live in Toronto. It is one of the biggest cities in the world. I will tell you that when the weather started shifting here in Toronto, typically it's like crazy it's crazy busy. Everyone's out in the gardens. It's super loud. Everyone's walking their dogs. Everyone's chatting with each other. When spring first started here this season, it was like eerily quiet. People were not going outside in the same numbers. People were not engaging with each other. We were coming out of another huge lockdown here in Toronto. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But when I look at things like 
meta and the promises meta wants to make for us. That's just not a world I want to live in. Yeah. I, I heard it recently phrased as it's like, it's like the matrix where agent Smith is the good guy. Interesting. It right flips the script to say, this is what's good for you. Whereas obviously Neo and co were fighting against that. And this is where, and I think you're right. I think that we're moving to, is it, I guess, a post-secular time where people, I'm not sure if Mm -hmm. I'm spacing out on secular, where we're moving away from this idea of atheism, technology as a religion to save all problems. And we're either finding our, people are finding roots back to Christianity. People are finding um, meaning in, in different aspects of spirituality, you know, where mm-hmm. they're saying, no, it's not just all, you know, code. And there's, there's more depth to this. There's more depth to my purpose, my meaning, my creation. And so that is, you know, a byproduct of having been pushed to this edge where all of a sudden that humanness in us is saying, I need something different. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. And I think I love that you're saying that because I am all for science and I use science all of the time, as you know, in my books, almost to a fault, I'm always trying to like, is there a study for this? Can I back this up? But I think it is important that we do lean into our own knowing. Mm -hmm. Like it is okay to say that that just doesn't feel good. Like I don't actually, like when I, when I, like I say this to people because I'm trying to help them manage technology. So I have two questions I have people ask at the end of each day. You may have remember, remember this from good burdens, but I have them ask at the end of each day, what today was most life-giving and what today was most life-taking. It's a very simple question, but when you just bring those things into your awareness, it's like, okay, so the most life-giving thing for me today was I took five minutes and threw the ball outside with my kid in the backyard. And my most life-taking thing was scrolling Instagram for 45 minutes. And just knowing that in your body, like you don't need to like, you know, mentally work it through. Like, why is it that (laughs) one felt really bad and one felt really good? Like you just know it to be true. And when we pause long enough to check into our bodies, into our minds, into our hearts, I think we know what we need. I think we know what we need more of. I think we know what we need less of. And I want to help create a world where it's easier and easier to say yes to those life-giving things, where it doesn't require so much work to detangle our lives from the web. Um, I'm connected with this group called Fair Play in the US, and they used to be known as the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood, which is all about making sure kids have the freedom to have a childhood without being without targeted marketing. Mm -hmm. And they posted something recently, and it was around mostly what big tech companies do, especially around parental controls, is they put all of the responsibility on parents who are already like losing their minds because they're so exhausted and overworked and just like trying to manage lives. And instead of the default being set in a way that like minimizes screen time and like benefits kids, it puts all of that onus on parents to learn new platforms, right? to manage the technology. It's like a part-time job now for parents to manage technology, but just that simple shift, like the onus over, like for, I read that and I'm like, I'm in this space. And it was even an aha moment for me, like, oh, right. <laughs> like I shouldn't feel bad that I'm not on top of this. The company should feel bad for putting that on me. Yep. 
right? And so that reframe. So yeah, I, I want to make a world, I want to help create a world, right? Where it's easier and easier for us to have that space. Um, we're not having to sort of like white knuckle it back from mm. big tech. <laughs> yeah, white knuckles. <laughs> and again, I, and I, I would reiterate what you're saying. This is not an anti-tech conversation. It is, it is not an anti-Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple conversation or Amazon. It's, it's trying to, to distill where these things serve a purpose and where they become toxic, yeah. poisonous, and then to live in that. And you brought up something that is critical, I think, which is this idea of understanding our intuition, understanding mm. that intuition, where that can be clouded by the influences that we are, uh, you know, known and unknown influences in our life before those influences. And, I, and this, all, this all creates the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Mm. Why we can do something, why we can't do something is usually rooted in what somebody has told us we can or cannot do, whether it's our parents or our teachers uh, originally right? The, the people closest to us, the influences us, maybe we were bullied in school and that made us feel something or we were cut from the basketball team. And we have a feedback loop where we then create a story that de determines how we face new things in our life. And now you throw in social media and you throw in advertising en masse. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, I want that toy. If we're talking about kids, it's, I'm not a good person. It's, I, it goes to that level now, you know, not intentionally. When you look at Instagram, Instagram is incredibly inspirational and incredibly toxic at the same time in making us, it's not mirroring to us in a healthy way. It's mirroring to us in a negative way. And so how do you with yourself or as you're talking about it and teaching it, help people get in touch with what's really their voice and not the voice of the, where they've been captured as an audience or the echo chamber of which they live in digitally. Is that a fair question? <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Okay. So a couple of things. So I talk a lot about FOMO because it's the antithesis of JOMO and JOMO is my thing. And so I like to sort of explain FOMO as having three core messages. So the three core messages of FOMO, the fear of missing out are you're not doing enough, you don't have enough, and you are not enough, right? It's what we're hearing all the time. And FOMO, you can you can look at FOMO and it's actually it's sort of an a, a emotional or psychological phenomenon called social contagion. So it's like wanting what other people have. So that's the social piece. And it's contagious because we're looking at other people and all of a sudden this want starts to grow in us. So it's wanting what people have or appear to have more often on social media. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we counteract that is by knowing our values, by knowing what really matters most to us. I went through a values discovery process with this group I was with yesterday. That's part of my process and my teaching is helping people discover their core values because when you know what you truly value, let's say your core three core values are integrity, health, and family. Then when you go on Instagram next and you're looking at a thing 
and it was inspirational at one point, but now you look at it and you're like, I was really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Not performing as good as that person, not hustling as hard as that person, not as spiritual as that person, whatever the case may be. And you can look at that content person, whatever brand, and you can run it through those values and say, why, why do I even want, like, why am I even wanting that? It doesn't line up with my values. And it's also true that a thing that served you at one point isn't serving you anymore. Another method I have, I run a program called the Joma Method, and every month we get together for a digital house cleaning party. So we clean house digitally, we unfollow, we unsubscribe, we delete. Um, And on the social media side, what I have people ask are three questions. First of all, so you're running, you're going in your, let's say we're going to use Instagram again. So you go into your Instagram account and the challenge is to unfollow 20 20 accounts, which for some people is super easy. And for others, it's incredibly difficult, but the questions are, yeah, yeah. They're like, but what about the pushback? People are going to upset when I unfollow. I'm like, that's, that's their problem. problem. Um, But first of all, like who, or what is this? Like, there are so many accounts that you can't even remember, right. Who or what that is. So if you don't know who or what it is, then you unfollow it. It doesn't even matter. Okay. So you, if you do know who or what it is, then the next question is, um, is this important? Like it might've been important before, but isn't it important today? Is it still have importance for you? Mm-hmm. If the answer is no, you unfollow. If it is, then you go to the third question. The third question is, do you want to bring this with you? Mm-hmm. Is this something that you want to bring forward with you in your life? And if you do, then you should continue following that and that being a source of inspiration or challenge or whatever the case information, whatever the case may be. But it is true that I love what I wrote it down. You probably saw me jotting notes. I always have a pen. I got one too. (laughs) When I'm typing, that's awesome. Um, But you were saying about how, how right. Our beliefs about ourselves can be clouded by people telling us what we can or cannot do. And it is incredibly, and, and, we, and we constantly see ourselves in other people that we're, we're designed, you know, we're designed to do that, um, mirroring um, one another. And so when we look at other people, even people that we don't even, that we don't know, it is in us as human beings to somehow want to relate to that being that other person and um they influence us and so we need to be really really strategic about who and what we allow in because like you you have big you know i keep pointing to because i can see all of your athletic like all are those, are those all marathons behind your, you this is this is from my track and field days as a uh and cross country days in high school and college cool. these are these are um plain like from trips i've taken yeah. they're like but like cool. rigs but that's that's nice. that's arts that's arts and crafts night in my house i made that yeah. like that's literally it my wife and i have like an art date once a month and so i'm not like i love it i made that <laughs> there's a few other there's a few other things that's not going to end up in the in the um the louvre anytime soon <laughs> or anything like that but i but what i was trying to say is like you you have goals right it's like what are those goals and is the content, are the things you're consuming, helping support, moving you in the right direction? I'll just say one last thing. There's a book I recommend to everyone. It's called Stand Out of Our Light. It's actually like Creative Commons. So you can you can find it anywhere. But it's written by a philosopher of technology named, named James Williams. And he actually is also an ex-Googler and started the time well spent campaign with Tristan Harris. He's kind of like a little silent 
sort of founder um, at the very beginning, but he's gone on. He does incredible work. But the basic idea behind his book is that the he argues that the primary problem with big technology is that it is influencing us to do things that we we do, we simply do not want to do. There is a, there's a verse in the Bible actually that says, "I do that." Paul says, "I do the thing I do not want to do." Like we're all doing that all the time. And so when we're creating huge, powerful technology structures for people be, are being pulled into ways of being that they never intended for their lives, that is a huge problem democratically, socially, economic, like on every level. And so it's such a simple and tiny book, but it is the best thing I've ever read. So Stand Out of Our Light by yeah, James yeah. Williams. Highly recommend. I'll send it to you afterwards. But we need the freedom to want what we want to want. Mm-hmm. We need the freedom to pursue the goals that we feel inside of the very core of our beings that we're meant to pursue mm-hmm. as being an excellent spouse, being an, a great neighbor, being a, a wonderful artist, being an, a pro, like an amazing athlete, whatever the case may be. There shouldn't be massive structures standing in the way of those things. And that those are the influences we're talking about when we're talking about primarily social media, right? And um, digital digital capitalism. Yeah. I know we've gone way deep into like the dark hole. <laughs> we want to come yeah. up for a little while. <laughs> the intellectual dark web. No, I, the, uh, yes. The, the the, I have to ask, is that, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul quote, does that have to do with being in air quotes, Caesar's world where, you know, if I am mm. in the world of the spirit, if I'm in the world of God, I, I, that isn't the case, but when I am in Caesar's world, I do what I don't want to do. Is that or not? I don't know the context. To be but. honest, I don't actually know. So that would be a great, a great look up after this conversation. Because I know that a lot of Jesus's message had to do with their Caesar's world, which is what we all live in. Yeah. Mike called it the matrix now, but you know, let's, let's say that that's what it is. And then there's you know, the, the true kingdom of heaven. And mm-hmm. the of God, that is true to all the things that we are or were intended to be, um, were intended to be true for us. And that's a very terrible segue into where else I think we're going with this conversation when we're talking about doing the things that we don't want to do. And we're talking about how do we tap into our own values and our own thoughts and live the way that we want to live. And I, and I, I think back to when you took your, your, your tech fast, your cleanse. And I think about the times that I've been, you know, in the woods for two weeks remote without access. And even before that share stories, if we get there, but what happens when you have that clarity that you mentioned at the beginning of this is that clarity also comes with the calm of not caring so much not in an insensitive way, but not caring so much about the things that the world tells us to care about. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a very important difference between hysteria around COVID, hysteria around Ukraine, hysteria around gun laws, and the demand of, of the social media world to make us hysterical and camp us versus to take that thing 
and feel it in your own way on your own time and come to your own conclusions. And then mm-hmm. maybe use the internet to, okay, here's where I landed. Now let's right. explore that a little bit more. But mm-hmm. we are just instantly pulled into hysteria, into division, into, into hate. And I don't think, and you can tell me what you think, I don't think that's how most people feel about any of these things. I think the that's hysteria, a great point. <laughs> you know, most people are Switzerland or not wanting to be bothered by, you know, and again, not, not caring. Of course, you can care about what's happening in the Ukraine without having to hate somebody else for some reason because they don't agree with what's happening in the Ukraine or something like that. Yeah. Do, you, do you in your in your talks, in your in these experiences, do you feel like the sentiment is not what we live online is very different in 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 person? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I want to say about this is I really advocate for slow like for slower forms of news media. So there isn't really any Unless you are a foreign diplomat or a president or prime minister or someone who actually is going to have direct impact into having to make decisions, right, for, you know, spur of the moment, right, based off of these global conflicts, there's no real need for you to know this information minute to minute, hour to hour, even honestly, day to day. I'm not saying we should all be in the dark and not be educated citizens, you know, that are engaged with knowledge of the world. But if you were to receive, like, if you took that time investment of just like, you know, consuming super, super bite-sized bits, like you don't even have context. Like, let's, let's be honest. We're all reading hot headlines, right? On Twitter. Uh, hot or takes or headlines. Hot yeah. takes and headlines. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't even have context, but then we're like spouting opinions about something we don't even understand. If you were to take all that energy and put that time and a little bit of money into a subscription to your local newspaper or your national newspaper or like the New York Times or the, you know, or one, like the Times, like a London or something like that. And just once a week (laughs) read the news and got some context and understood like one problem in the world, like pretty well, then you have a conversation about it and then meaningfully do something with it. The problem with having news is it's actually incredibly disempowering. It actually depresses you because of your inability to affect any meaningful change. Mm. So it's actually better for you to know intimately a problem in your like direct neighborhood and be able to actually help that person or that organization, right, to do something about it. Otherwise, we're just like, we're just kind of fat. Like we're like, you know, to use the metaphor of the body, like we're just kind of fat on knowledge that's not useful and it enrages us. And then we're dis- like, and then, then we feel helpless. Mm-hmm. So I think slower forms of media and also having like a couple of people that you could maybe talk those big ideas out with is a way better use of your time than spouting off half-formed ideas in a timely manner in a hope of like maybe going viral once. Like what is our end game here? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I was listening to, it was Jordan Peterson for sure. And I can't remember if it was Jordan Peterson and Rex Murphy, think, okay. who, who was a famous Toronto, uh, well, Canadian yes, I'm familiar. right? Yeah. They were yeah. talking about 
the need for people to get back to local government, to get back to that kind of community. You know, you're, you may be, you're irate with Trudeau, maybe you're not, but he's like, that wasn't the solve. The solve is at your community hall meetings where you're yeah. taking part and you actually can share your views and make a difference in in a municipal, I guess, a municipal type environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who's in those meetings? There's certainly many millennials or Z's in there, you know, and I, and this is where I, I just heard something again, a, a person who says she's, she, she believes that all of journalism, all of media has been captured. It's done. And she says the, the reason she has no faith for the way it used to be is because the future belongs to the youth and, you know, so the young will shape and who's in those meetings. It ain't, it ain't the youth. No, who's, you know, who, I was going to say <laughs> they're not at those meetings. Exactly. Exactly. They're not at the municipal meetings. They are not, you know, no. Yeah. So we're, and maybe I misphrased it. If I, I meant to say they're not and therefore, and, and her point was in any context, they're never going to be. Unless well, the next generation after <laughs> decides they really want to, to reconnect at that level. And so, you know, we're, en- we're entering a phase where, you know, we're all going to live in the bite-sized hot takes macro global environment, which we can affect no change, but can espouse anger and feel distressed. That's that was again her pessimistic mm. outlook on it. And that's not really a question. I guess I just go, I guess it's just me saying I agree with your point that it that we do need to feel empowered mm-hmm. at the local level. And that is where true change can happen. Mm-hmm. This is a challenge to me as you're talking, because um two things I'm gonna do this weekend, um, inspired by our conversation. One is resubscribing to our hyper-local newspaper. We actually have some, you may have heard of Margaret Ad, Margaret Atwood. Of course. Yeah. Margaret Atwood, right? Yes, The Handmaid's Tale, all these things. Well, Margaret Atwood lives on the west side of Toronto. I live on the west side of Toronto, and she's part of forming this local newspaper called the West End Phoenix, which is on the west side of Toronto. And I was a subscriber, and we moved, and I stopped subscribing. But one of the tangible things I'm going to do is resubscribe to that newspaper. It is local news, but it's also like liter, you know, there's literature and other things in there, but like what a gift that a group of people, and she doesn't run it, but she's like, you know, supports that kind of thing, but a group of people had this vision and then, and then made it a reality and are like, honestly, right. Working for peanuts to like put this unique hyper-local thing out into the world, which is happens to be where I live. And why would I not get behind a thing, yeah. right? Um, that, that people have worked so hard to create just for us. Another thing is, is I recently, we recently moved and we cleaned out. I love that this is the ramble. Thank you for letting me ramble. I don't normally <laughs> get to do it. So I get to tell you stuff I never get to tell anybody. Um, I hope that's okay. It's okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm about to tell you about how I recently moved and we cleaned out our last like storage unit or whatever in the neighborhood. I can't stand having storage units. I think it's a terrible thing to have. But anyways, too many things. Uh, but I was emptying it and I was chatting with someone in the hallway and he's like, oh, it's good you're coming right now. 
um, it's not that busy. And I was like, oh, when is it usually busy? He was like, oh, well, at night when the people that live here like open up their doors and and like come again, like what now? But there are people living in these self storage units, and the uh, you know the manager like the managers know, but it's not something really do about it. Yeah, because housing like it's just people that are in like serious poverty are living in these self storage units, and I've been meaning to talk to our local municipal representative to bring this to her attention, and I haven't done it but I can't stop thinking about it. And it's like these small steps, right? That's actually something that I can do. And I've had hesitations about it because I don't want them to be forced out of those living conditions either, because I don't know if they, they probably have nowhere else to go, but she needs to at least be made aware of that. And how else is she going to know unless a citizen, a local you know, neighbor speaks to her about it. And these are these small steps. That I think so many of us, first of all, feel like we have no time for because mm-hmm. we're being just hustled just on to the next career ladder climbing, social status climbing, financial gain <laughs> hack, like personal improvement project. Yeah. Like, like these are the things that make a community, that make a world good. Like, and we need just like that little bit of margin in our lives to invest in those things. And it's why I actually... If you go into my Instagram account right now, you're going to see that I followed zero people. I unfollowed everyone. I am taking a really hard line on my content consumption because I just want time for other things. Mm-hmm. I just really do. And my life is better. Yeah. It's so much better when I'm not, when I'm online less. And that's not like a 10 step strategy for digital health. It's just like what's working for me right now. And I just want people like I would just if, to anyone listen, who's listening, who maybe has a prompt, you know, to do that, like you have the freedom, mm-hmm. right, to do all of these things to completely restrict what you consume. And the beautiful thing is, is you can always go back if it really mattered to you, you can always go back and find that social account, you can always go back and resubscribe to that thing, you can always go, you know, binge watch that show again, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever the case may be, like, it'll all be there still waiting for you. But like, time is passing us by, like, we need to do and live the way that we want to live now. Yeah, yeah. The, being, the, the, being engaged in, you know, whatever the zeitgeist is, whatever the cultural conversation is, minute to minute is, you know, is interesting to an extent. You know, that's one thing. It's totally. also meaningless to another extent. And this is where, again, this hysteria is, is so misguided. Mm-hmm. Culture changes all the time. This is why I have, I have personal challenges with our education system shifting so much to culture from, I, I'm not saying that the things that in culture that we learn aren't important. But to, to, to learn things that are always, always changing versus, you know, learning how to learn or learning the fundamentals, principles of, you know, what I deem an education to be, I think there's a time and a place for both. But I think it's, it's a mistake to, you know, because we, we look at, we 
we get hysterical about what's happening in the culture and we forget that in five years and 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, that is going to shift and shift and shift and shift and shift again and again and again and again, mm-hmm. not always for the better and not always for the worse. And it's not to say that the emphasis that we've had hasn't been a really important one over you know the last 10 years, 20 years, but it's just where we're, you know, where we're, we're putting that attention and energy versus putting it in a place of a presence in the moment that we're living with the people that we're living it with. And that brings me to something that jumped out of your book, uh, which was Nixon. No, Nixon, Nixon. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, which one is it? Nixon or Nixon? I think it's a Nixon. Nixon. It's a, it's Dutch, right? Yep. And it is the art of art doing of being together for no together purpose. For zero purpose. <laughs> yeah, which fascinated me. It it, it reminded me of Hug a little bit, which is the Dutch mm. uh, or sorry, which is the Danish word for yeah. just creating comfort. Yeah, yeah. And we don't really have a word for that in the English language that I'm aware of. And again, I go back to the, the core of what you're doing always. There's this idea of presence and finding, you know, finding meaning and joy in the moment. So what's the question there? The question is just how does one cultivate this level of patience and this, this ability to let go and disconnect so that they can live at least a portion of their life much more just in the joy of, you know, an amor fati, if you will, a love of fate, a love of a neighbor popping by and having a quick visit, which you talk a little bit about in Good Burdens and, and, you know, the joy of a spontaneous event versus a planned event, like, and thus becoming really good at just being present and, and thus having the connection that's created from that. Is there a, is there a blueprint for it to get there? Great question. So I want to share two things. One is about making, just leaving margin, like just leaving margin in our calendars for those Nixon moments, (laughs) the potential chance encounter or planned Mm -hmm. visit um, with, with loved ones. The other one is this idea of good burdens, because I think good burdens actually also get us there. So the idea with a good burden is that there's these certain activities that once you get across a certain threshold of effort, the burden of it disappears and it becomes a joy. Mm-hmm. So I think there's two ways in it. There's creating margin. There's actually like taking bigger, more substantial things on and both of us can get us to that place of presence. So a simple way, I think, to have those unexpected peaceful moments, maybe chatting with a neighbor or something like that is I once almost titled a talk, uh, just sit on your porch, (laughs) just sit on your porch. Not everyone has a porch, but everyone has like some kind of space where they can see outside and you will be so surprised by how quickly, like sometimes I'll just go and sit on like our very beat up. We moved to this new house and renovated inside, not outside. So our front stairs are like very <laughs> rickety and I sit out there on our rickety front stairs and sometimes I'll just read. Like I read for my work. I read also for pleasure. And so instead of sitting on my couch, I just sit on my stairs and I read 10 minutes or 15 minutes. It does two things. It first creates the opportunity for conversation, but even if people don't converse with me and I've noticed 
the impact that this has on me when I go for walks. Seeing another person just sitting on their front porch, enjoying a peaceful moment alone, it does something to your own, like it does something to you. It does something to your, your what is the system? I'm talking, your nervous system. Mm-hmm. It does something to your nervous system when you're walking down the street and you just see someone just peacefully just enjoying the pleasure of the day sitting outside, enjoying nature, reading a book, whatever the case may be. I, I, I always smile when I see someone just sitting on their front porch, just enjoying. And when it does that, I feel like it gives me permission to do the same thing. Like, oh yeah, I could just like sit on that outdoor couch I purchased from my front porch mm-hmm. and like enjoy that. And then, you know, and then maybe have a conversation. The thing with good burdens, which we haven't talked too much about yet, but it's activities that I'm going to say it again, because I think it's important for people to understand there are activities that once you get across a certain threshold of effort, the burden of it disappears and it becomes a joy. So an example of that would be, um, and this is the most obvious one. And I read about it in the book is creating a meal. Okay. So going grocery shopping, planning out a meal, cooking the meal and then gathering people around the table. It's a very burdensome thing. Anyone that's cooked Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, right? Um, and a big, a big meal of some kind, uh, you know, they spend all of this time and then it's like, you know, two days of work and then it's like 20 minutes of eating or something like that. But it's a good burden because once you're around the table, enjoying the food, you know, and, and enjoying the pleasure of other people enjoying that and the conversation, like that is a container that you've created for presence, right? To enjoy the presence of others. Um, another good burden would be gathering your ideas and writing them into a note or a letter and sharing that with someone, right? It's a burdensome thing. It, it, it takes effort and attention. That's a lot. I like talk a lot about that in good burdens is these good burdens are things that require our, both our attention and our effort to do them, but they give us so much back. So letter writing, right? I just got a letter this morning from a close friend of mine that lives in Copenhagen. It's one page, but like just looking at it and seeing her handwriting, like the joy of that, that's creating a moment of pause and presence for me. Um, She did that by taking the time to create that for me. Uh, Another one is just going for a walk after, you know, an evening walk with your dog or you know, a loved one, um, that's a burdensome thing. It'd be easier to probably just plop down on your couch. But the thing also about good burdens is even though they require a lot of effort, they're energy begetting, Mm -hmm. they give us energy. So we think we're going to be right. We're going to get pleasure or rest from just schlepping over from like zooming all day on our computer for work. And then you know, walking five steps and going away and then just going onto another screen and watching Netflix on our couch. Um, I think that's going (laughs) to, yes, we switch screens, (laughs) but it actually takes more than it gives. And so I don't think I'm exactly answering your question, but I feel like these things all connect because presence, effort, attention, putting our effort and attention on things, um, that provide opportunities for relational connection or connection to nature or connection to creativity. These things are energy begetting. They give us a lot back and it, and we actually don't need that much of it. It's just that we do need it. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be intentional about getting that like every single day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, you know, when I read, when I read it and I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, we're really good at good burdens when we're on vacation. Hmm. Give me an example. Vac- I'd love to hear. Well, 
cooking a meal in Italy with your, with your Airbnb host or making a cooking class in Thailand to learn how to cook pad thai that you may not otherwise have ever taken the time to do because it would have been too much of a burden at home. Um, Mm. Presence, how, you know, when we're on vacation, we sit, we read, we observe, we walk, we, um, we're okay with a certain, not all of us, but, you know, a certain degree of spontaneity, you know, letting the journey take us a little bit. And then when we throw in the work factor, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it takes all those things that we can find joy in. And it turns them into burdens, even if they're good burdens. And yet, if you take out the work, we don't actually view them all as burdens. You know, if you are in a love relationship, like let's say, sorry, you're not in a love relationship. If you're in a long distance relationship with, with a lover, the idea of a love letter is romantic. But if you, but then once the halo, you know, the excitement's worn off, then it's all of a sudden a burden. So like we're, we're so close mm. to these things being non-burdens. You know, and yet because of how our society has, has put things, they become them. And this, that's again, another very jarring, dis, you know, disorganized way of talking about la burnout. Ah, burnout. <laughs> if you want to go there, I, that was in good burdens, right? Not in Jomo, right? Yeah. Not yeah. in Jomo so much, but it's true. Yeah. Okay. Ask your question. And I have something I want to say. No, you say, you say, and then we'll, if we get to the burnout, we get to, we can ramble in any direction. I love how (laughs) you're saying Liberno because I totally read that article. It probably was the same one, but they're like Liberno, like in France, they're like translation, not needed. (laughs) Same, same, same meaning. Well, you were talking and what I was thinking about was and something we haven't talked about yet is this idea of the tyranny of efficiency. So that actually comes from Tim Wu, who wrote a book called The Attention Merchants, which is all about big tech and the commodification of our, you know, our data and all and our attention. But, can, you know, the big promises of big tech are convenience, comfort and control. But his argument is that over time, always expecting things to be convenient and always expecting to be able to control things and always being in a state of comfort makes it so that we do not tolerate discomfort. We are not okay with inconvenience. We are not okay in being situations where we are out of control. And so his argument is that over time, and I completely believe this, it begins to constrain what we're willing to do. And he calls it the tyranny of efficiency. It's a kind of tyranny where we refuse to do things. And so it's painful to read an article, even just an article all the way through now. Right. We get to conspiracy theory now. <laughs> You're on the edges of it's, why it's, is that happening? <laughs> no, but it's, but it's, I don't think so though, because I'm just, I'm you think about, <laughs> but like writing the letter to your loved one, for example, it's like, why would it be painful for me to write a love note mm-hmm. for like five minutes? That's actually not a burden, mm-hmm. but it's become one because we're, we're not practiced. Mm, okay. at discomfort. We're not practiced at inconvenience. I remember talking to one of my best friends. She moved to Vancouver, sadly. All my best friends are moving back to Vancouver. I do not Wait, forgive. Those I, I do. Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it's the East-West um, East migration, right? East, I know. It's very sad. <laughs> but I was talking with her and I don't know if it's part of like, you know, getting older or whatever, but I said to her and it was like such a revelation for me. And I wonder if that you've encountered this even with like athletics and things like that. But that there was this huge freedom 
I discovered in just accepting a baseline of pain. Mm-hmm. That might sound masochistic, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Like, like when I stopped expecting things to be easier, when I stopped expecting things to feel better, it was just like, I felt just like free all of a sudden. Like, I don't need things to feel good all the time. Glennon Doyle, who you might know, you know, have heard of before, she used to say like, she's amazing. Like we can do hard things. Like we really can. And it actually feels really good to do hard things. And we're built to do it. And we're built to do hard things. And so there's a quote I love from Flannery O'Connor and she wrote, um, we have to push as hard as against the age that pushes us. And so the big pushes of our age, right, are this convenience and control and convenience. And I know I'm beating the drum, but I really want people to get this. So the, we push back against those things, right, by embracing discomfort, by being okay with inconvenience in service of bigger goals, of, of bigger lives, right? Accomplishing the really big goals we set out for ourselves that are going to take multiple years, that are going to take a lot of hard work that there's no real control or we can't control it. And there's no real promise that it's going to pay off. There's just something that we knew we need to do. These are the things we're meant to do with our lives. And so anything that's restricting that, anything that's, that's, you know, making it difficult for you to get at those things. Like, I think we need to let them go. That's the joy of missing out on the right things, right? Letting those things go. It's, it, it reminds me of the Bhagavad Gita's, and the idea of, you know, we are entitled to the work, not the result. Seth Godin, famous mm. marketer, you know, talking about the practice, we are entitled to the practice, not the outcome. And, and that is, this, I, again, you know, I, I don't mean to keep bringing it back to politics. This is my fear of universal basic income. I like the idea that everyone can have a living wage and, you know, especially in an increasingly expensive world. So they don't have to live in storage units. But I don't like the idea of saying the government's going to take care of everything and take all the burdens and struggles away from us because we lose the opportunity to grow. We grow through resistance. Mm. If you're, you know, running example, you don't weightlifting. You're an athlete. You were an athlete. You row now, but I listened to an interview. You were, you were high school jock basketball. It was, (laughs) it's true. Right. I mean, we, you don't get better at a sport until the muscles break down and then regrow resistance struggle. And we are entering what Michael Easter, I think I've got his name, right. Calls the comfort crisis. And he wrote a best-selling book about it. And mm-hmm. he talks about, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm only just into it now, but he talks about it from a physical discomfort t- standpoint where we have to reconnect with the things that are discomfort that cause us discomfort in in such a way that we don't have a way out of them easily. This is part of the reason, you know, by way of example, that I have actually started hunting is to to know and feel the challenge of bringing food all the way to my table. So that isn't just the hunt; it's you know, which is seven days in the bush, bugs, no Wi-Fi, bad weather, but harvesting, butchering, packaging, all of it, start to finish so that I wow. know what it's like 
we grow our own vegetables on our farm now, not mm. that it's enough to sustain us, but we, and then, you know, last year we lost most of the crop to the super mm. hot weather we had in the province. That is struggle. And this is just a, a new experiment you know, in that book, they, or at least in an article that they had this, there's a Japanese tradition called Misagi, I believe. And it, that tradition literally was this sort of yearly cleanse by bathing under a freezing cold waterfall. Okay. But then it's sort of transformed into pushing yourself in once a year, at least in a way that you have a degree where you can fail. There's at least a 50% chance that you're not going to achieve the thing that you're trying to do so that you can reconnect with struggle so that you become more comfortable with struggle so that when you're successful, you build confidence in your capacity as a human being to overcome struggle. And then that can flow into all the little things as well. Uh, you know, is like you said, the, the idea of cooking a dinner becomes less of a struggle when you've been on, you needed to cook that dinner on the side of a mountain when it was minus 10 and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So I hear you. And I think that you are very much onto something again, good burdens that the best things in life are worth struggling for the best things in life. And that struggle doesn't have to be a bad thing, but that because it makes the choice conscious, it makes the intention greater. It makes, you know, you write somebody a letter, it's somebody knows that you took the time. Mm -hmm. And as you're speaking, like, was it called? I think it's Misagi. M-I-S-O-G-I, I think it's the Misagi. Like as you're talking about these things, reconnection to struggle, and then you're bringing back the examples I use of cooking dinner or writing a letter. It's like, all of a sudden was a shock to my system. Like, why would that be a struggle? Like what a first world problem? Like, oh, it's so hard to cook a meal for my family. Like that is not a real struggle, mm -hmm. but we've gotten to this point and I take full responsibility for it happening in my own life where we see these things as hardships, like these are not real. And this is the problem. I'm absolutely going to read that book and look for that book, The Comfort Crisis. I'm curious about what you were saying or what he says in the book about doing it in a way that you can't get out of it. Can you speak more to that? Because I want to understand that better. So that, I don't know if it's from the book. I know it's from an article he wrote that was in promotion of the book or in conjunction with its launch, I think, where when you give yourself a 50-50 chance of success, let's say, you, you made the point earlier in this podcast where you said, well, I could just pretend that I'm having tech issues and it's done, right? Okay. That's an easy way out. So what if you put yourself in a situation where there actually is no easy way out? The only mm -hmm. way out is by connecting, going deep inside, connecting with your willpower, figuring it out, problem solving, surviving, if you will. And this is not life or death. It's not put yourself in a life or death situation. But it's like, it's like the phone in the phone lock case. There's no easy way out to just check. If you put that thing in there for 30 days, you literally can't use it for 30 days. There's no easy way mm -hmm. out. So that's what they mean is you can't have a modern convenience or some sort of, you know, the difference between being dropped in the middle of Alaska, which is an example he used and having to hike 33 days out versus doing the Pacific Crest Trail in California, where there's a town every two days. And if you want, you can go to the town and have a cup of coffee and sleep in a hostel. Easy way out. Right. And, you know, this is this is one of those things that's that's 
it's just so easy. I, I read a book called Jupiter's Travels, which is about the, the first, his name was Ted Simon. He was the first guy to motorcycle around the world. Hmm. And he did this in the seventies when, you know, well, imagine motorcycling around the world in the seventies. And he even said for him, his challenge was not to always find the hostel or sorry, the little well, hostel or cheap motel and the beer at the end of a hard day but instead to pull out his tent and sleep under, you know, or, or sleep under the stars. And he said, sleeping under the stars was always far more rewarding, but the convenience almost always won out. Mm. So we're not that far from that. No. And, and, and this is like, we talk about, you're absolutely right. Cooking a meal isn't a hardship, but how often do we hear people say the laundry, the cooking, these are things that are just like stressing us out. Like will you not imagine, and that's a byproduct. I think this is your quote. Our addiction to tech is not a self-control problem, but an environmental one, which I think would be in good burdens. It's an environmental problem. Yeah. There's so much stimulation. Yeah. Cooking becomes a burden. Right. Time to cook becomes a burden because there's a gazillion other things coming down the pipe. It's like I'm staring down the barrel of the gun all the time. Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, you did. Okay. You absolutely did. Thank you. Thank you. It got me thinking about, I spoke about it a little bit yesterday. You know, Scandinavia, we hear about it all the time. It's the happiest people in the world. They off every year, you know, the UN happiness index, they're always at the top. And my understanding of the reason behind this, at least part, part of the reason for this is because they per capita are involved in more social commitments So that's like the not getting out of it thing. They are every week they have, you know, everyone has at least one, but usually it's multiple times of multiple nights a week that are spoken for. So book clubs, um, some kind of social, you know, volunteer position that they have Mm. some kind of regular ongoing social commitment. And the thing that I love about that is, first of all, it's premeditated. So you've decided in advance of that thing that has value. And so you're going through the effort of like finding, mm-hmm. right, an organization or a gathering of some kind that you're going to commit to on a regular basis. And then it's also with other people. So there's that social contract. Like you're going to show up because you're going to see Marjorie or Ted or whoever, right, at that thing. For me, I'm a rower. Part of the reason I row or return to rowing was because it is a sport, and it is exercise where I have no choice, but to show up. If I don't show up, the boat doesn't get on the water. Like that is on me. I have to show up. And so I think those social contracts are also a way into more joy. Those are ways into living the kinds of lives that we want to live. Those are the, the built in no way out. <laughs> and they teach people us. Will... Sorry. What's that? I didn't mean to cut you off, Christina. No, no. Cause, no, cause, cause people will notice, right? People will care that you're not there. And so I think the more that we can build those types of social commitments into our daily daily lives, the better we will be for it. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about shaping relationships, love being a good, ver- uh, love being a good burden because mm-hmm. love takes effort and love takes commitment. And I agree. And I, I, my, my curiosity backtrack what you're saying about these social commitments are the things that teach us how to have relationships because how we have relationships is is through effort and sacrifice and you know obviously shared goals but when we lose 
all of these these social contracts. When we look at even the last two years with with COVID and and people working from home, which I totally love. But at mm-hmm. the same time, you lose that accountability to the person sitting across from you. And that accountability transitions into our love relationships. And it's like almost like practice. Mm. In a way, how we show up, it's practice to our love relationships. It's practice to how we show up in our country, in our democracies, if we're fortunate mm-hmm. enough to have them. And it's part of the reason I think these things are starting to crumble in a very real way, you know, whether or not the democracy will ever truly crumble, probably not, but to the extent of participation being the, at its core and participation Mm -hmm. to your point, involving commitment, premeditated commitment that we have deemed purposeful is, you know, is something we don't have when we're digitally nomadic when we're living all around the world again, which I love, but then what's the, what's the downside? It's true. You know, I write about it in Good Burdens that we can only love so many people well. And when we're constantly uprooting, it takes an incredible amount of time to meet people, to build intimacy, right? And to sustain that relationship. And yeah, that's that's limited when we're constantly um, living the digital nomadic life. Um, Huge benefits, but but also big downsides. I, I know we've invested in our neighborhood. We, every year we host a pumpkin carving party. It's kind of a funny thing that we started with our, the church we attended many years ago. Um, they were like, what's a way that we can engage in the neighborhood? And, you know, we have young kids and we're like, well, pumpkin carving, super messy. No one really wants to do it in their house. What if we like just set up a bunch of tables in our backyard and do this pumpkin carving party? And so we put up like makeshift signs in the neighborhood. We had no idea if anyone would show up. My parents happened to be visiting that weekend. We like all crossed our fingers and like almost a hundred people showed up for this pumpkin carving party. It was like a bananas. It was the most amazing thing ever. We had the best time. And so every year we've hosted it since. And it's like such a simple thing. Last we were moving, I thought like we didn't even have a space to do it in. And, and our kids just like looked at this, like, are you insane? Of course we're doing this. Like, how could we not do it? Because the commitment had been built in them, but this was just what we do for our neighbors. And so there's this little roundabout around the corner from where we live. And so we just popped up some tables, called in some reinforcements and did it, you know, kind of spur the moment, but the tradition continued. And it's those types of things. It's such a small thing, but it's those types of things that build the fabric of a neighborhood that make a place worth living in the street party that someone goes through the huge burden of coordinating every year, right? Or whatever, your mailman, we have a great mailman, right? And like knowing his name and seeing him walking down the street every day. It's all of these small things that make a life that bring joy and meaning and purpose to our lives. And so I think there's something huge to be said for staying in a place and investing in the people you know, that are right in front of you. That said, you know, there's that quote, like bloom where you're planted, right? Even if you're in a place for a season, again, like just put in the effort, even if you're there for a short period of time. Um, yeah. That's, that's so cool. Well, I hope to find myself <laughs> in Toronto around your pumpkin. I'll just leave my pumpkin there, but I, the great, know, I, the, 
the Sorry. funniest part of the funniest part of this is that we're horrible pumpkin carvers. <laughs> like it dawned on me that other like I was saying to our kids a few months ago, I was like, you'd think after all of these events that we would like up our game, but it's still just like the hacked, yeah. like square eyes. Just like mine. Yeah, yeah. Whereas my wife so makes funny. a masterpiece. Oh, amazing. You see my art projects, you should see hers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to be respectful of your time and we're approaching 90 minutes, but I also wanted to make sure that I gave you enough time to talk you know, about good burdens in a way that maybe you haven't yet. I also mm-hmm. wanted to, if we can, just quickly come back to La Burnout because we mentioned it as well as yeah. where, you know, at the very beginning, we mentioned how you had to step, you realized you weren't living, practicing what you preached. And you had to step back into it. And I think that's an important mm-hmm. thing to share because that's yeah. what we all find ourselves in. Well, why don't we, why don't I talk about my burnout? Yeah, sure. That's my good. burnout. Yes. <laughs> you, guys can read, you can read her book to find out more about the burnout. <laughs> burnout. Um, I don't think burnout is a term that we need to define anymore. I think we're all very familiar with this idea. My burnout came by way of not being in integrity with myself. I'm actually reading Martha Beck's book, The Way of Integrity, or I just finished reading it. I highly recommend it. And it's, I think the way that I that led to my burnout, which I think is probably true for a lot of people, is all of these tiny decisions that were not aligned with who I really was and what I really valued. And so I followed a lot of marketing strategies, digital marketing strategies that were, you know, just considered to be part and parcel of how you build an online presence. We all want to scale. We all want to, right, have whatever. We all want to have a scalable, um, people don't scale, right? I don't scale as a speaker, but, but the way that you really make money is by having scalable products. And so I just followed a lot of kind of mainstream marketing efforts and strategies that I believed I had to follow in order to take my work to the next level. And I think I, and I know, like, I know there were the key moments where I was not listening (laughs) to my inner voice saying, "Mm, does it, is it really have to be done that way? Is that really in alignment with who you are? And I just said enough of those yeses that I found myself in a place of just total burnout, online content creation, which it's so ironic. Like it's just, it makes me so, so sad. (laughs) that I got into this place of like truly being paralyzed. Like I, where it ended up for me and you can read about it in Good Burdens is I was standing on a little Island in British Columbia about to meet with my publisher uh, that's based there. And I walked into this coffee shop and I was completely paralyzed. I literally couldn't speak or walk. And I had three of my little kids running around underneath me. I had published the book. I was, you know, I'd said yes to every opportunity in the name of Jomo and the name of this mission that I was on to spread the word of, you know, the joys of missing out. And in the process, I lost myself. I was completely overwhelmed. I um, was not missing out on anything joyfully. (laughs) I was, and it was, and it's a funny thing. And I, and I've heard I've heard of this, like other people being in this situation, someone that's like very purpose-driven, like they think that they're like 
that their whole entire purpose is wrapped up into this particular message. I know there's a, a, a colleague of mine, her name is Jess Davis, and she started something called Folk Rebellion, which is very similar to Jobo. Hers was like basically like a clothing company that had to do with basically a return to analog, but she was speaking and doing all these things. And she collapsed in a, an airport, you know, in between speaking engagements, running all over, you know, America, trying to be the folk rebellion, right? Yeah. That Thought leader. Arianna Huffington. Happy yes. Greg, Greg McCowan, who wrote Essentialism and then Effortless, same thing, hit the goal and then burnt out. Yeah. And so what I, you know, started reclaiming after that point, and you can read about it in the book. And then even now, I feel like I'm in a, a period of reset. Anytime you launch a big project, if you're a creative, every time you launch a new project in the world, like, I think you always need to build in a recovery period. It's like birthing a baby. Like you need, well, we have paid maternity leave here in Canada, thankfully. Um, but like that recovery period after like birthing a really big project, like we need those periods of recovery. I feel like I am in another reset in my own writing and my own strategies and the, and the ways that I operate in the world that are in closer and closer integrity with who I really am. And it is less and less digital. It's more and more analog. I'm feeling more and more confident about that decision. And it feels really, really good. Yeah. That is so inspiring for me to hear. Can you provide some strategy tips for someone who's kind of right there? You know, again, enough to make them want to pick up both of your amazing books, but just a teaser to say, hey, here's two or three little wade into the water of this decision. Absolutely. So I would start with that uh, daily practice that I mentioned earlier, which is tonight, ask yourself those two questions, which are what today was most life-giving and what today was most life-taking. And really just sit with those two questions or lie on your bed or whatever the case may be. And optimally write it on a piece of paper, write two columns, write a life-giving column and a life-taking column. Maybe over the course of the next week, just jot one thing in each column and just start noticing what's following, falling into those categories. And then from that awareness, start taking actions to better align particularly your digital habits with those things. So if you're noticing really consistently that you're losing sleep because you're, you know, you're binging whatever show, right? Late at night, then start reducing that by one show a night and then do more of the thing in your life-giving column. I I am a big uh, believer in digital house cleaning. It's why I do it every month. Um, so if people are interested, they can go to my website and sign up for my program. And we do that live every month together. It's one of the most joyful things that I do. Um, but you can do it at home with the questions that I mentioned earlier, also in this interview, which are asking yourself, just go into one of your social accounts and ask yourself, who is this? Is this important? Do I want to bring this with me? Um, and give yourself permission to clean house, to remove messages and brands and, and people that maybe at one point served a purpose, but aren't serving you well anymore. And then that's why they call you the Marie Kondo. Is that one <laughs> right there? Kondo the one they give you that Marie digital. Kondo of the digital world, yes. which is a very cool yes. compliment, by the way. Thank you. And, and is, great advice. 
it's um yeah i feel i feel very honored by that so those are a couple of the strategies i would recommend those are fantastic i recommend you you all sign up for that digital detox strategy or digital cleansing strategy and i have to ask this is i i i lent jomo but and i know we're not doing video but i'm holding up i'm holding up your book good burdens and i love the art was that you uh, or like did you find a friend or like cuz i just thought it was I'm so happy you noticed and brought that up. So her name is Sandra Javera and I tried something. So the program that I run is called the Jomo method. And what I was playing with, if you remember last year, but if I'm not doing it anymore, but what I did is I actually send people a postcard every month um, in the mail um, as an analog prompt, a reminder to disconnect and reconnect, like disconnect the internet and reconnect the real world. And so I actually commissioned artists last year to do the artwork for these postcards. And the person I had working with me finding, like sourcing artists found this artist named Sandra Javera. But originally the uh, tree was just a tree and I absolutely loved it. And so we reached out to her and asked, I really felt like we needed people because it's at the core of Good Burdens is really about relationship. And so she was such a joy to work with. And so she added in, when you get your copy of the book, dear listener, Mm-hmm. you'll see that there are people scattered throughout this tree. And so I love that it speaks of growth mm-hmm. and community. So yeah, not me, but a wonderful artist. Well, that's cool. I, I think that, I think that postcard and the monthly postcard is very cool. I, I, there's something so magical about that. Uh, maybe that's too big a word, maybe not, but I was on one podcast and I don't do this. I'm sorry, but and he sent me a postcard for thanking me to be on his po- podcast. And I was just like, that's so nice. I and do that. Was, yeah. That's really like, good. I want to grow up to do that. <laughs> 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 I got to, I got to get there. I got to get to your level, but is there anything else you want to share, you know, parting words with the, with the audience. And on top of that, where do you want people to come to discover you, to find you? Thank you. I don't think there's anything we didn't cover. I, 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 I encountered something after the writing of Good Burdens, which is a Latin idea. It comes from the Latin and, it, and it's sweeter after difficulty, but there are certain things that are sweeter after difficulty. Mm. And so I would just leave that, that there are things that are, there's a sweetness in, in the difficulty and in, in the hard things. Mm. And, and then I'll also just say the thing that I say at the end of every one of my podcast episodes, which is that I hope that you find joy in missing out on the right things and that you figure out what those right things are. And it is different for each and every person. And that is the joy of being human, that we're all unique, that we're all on different journeys. Yeah. So, and then to find me, you can go to Christina Crook com or experiencejomo.com. They both get you to the same place. Oh, fantastic. Well, I really want to thank you for the work that you do. Uh, it's incredibly important. It unfortunately is becoming even more important as the, as the battle for the matrix <laughs> so mm. speak, continues and, um, our, you know, and just our well-being and our sanity and, I love the way that you do everything. It's, it's also so, so beautifully done. And you have such wonderful energy that I just, people engage with Christina. Okay. Find a way to connect with her to just, whether it's social, whether it's purchasing one, both of her books, watching her TEDx talk, 
there's a fun little thing she does in the beginning, which I appreciated yes. a great deal. <laughs> and and you can write it. to me. I have a mailing address on my website. You can you can also mail things to me. Do that. Like there's your, there's yeah. your first point of entry into the practice is mail something. So thank you very much for, for giving all us your wisdom today and, and making some time for, for the podcast. I look Thank forward you to so having much for you having back. me. Sorry, I cut you off. Yes, please. Thank you. No, it's okay. <laughs> it was a joy to be here and I would love to come back. Wonderful. We will have you back. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there. So we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you, and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others, you know, all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it does doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests to think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that myself and of course my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through. You know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas and, and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show. And so I'm really grateful that, uh, that you've listened all the way through. You know, we don't have ads on the show, I think. I don't think Red Circle's running ads. But I wanted to take just a quick second to say that, hey, if the spirit moves you, you know, this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I, I try and be very diligent that I'm I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and and I'd love for you to check them out. You know, one is uh, Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. That's my book. And you can get it anywhere where books are sold online, like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, your, that's your shark tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people, if you're going through, you know, a startup needs some motivation, need some ideas, just want to feel like, Hey, there's a kindred spirit out there. You know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful and inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.